So uh, welcome to everyone. I, I said I would introduce myself. Uh, I'm Mark Ridgway. Uh, my background is being in information technology and innovation. I've got a long career in that and I'm now retired. And I help out Tony on the Gospel Conversations Committee. And tonight I want to address some issues that uh, came out of the conference with Esther Meek, Professor Esther Meek. I had the joy, actually, of being with her for two, three days, full days, showing around Sydney and, and talking with her. And that was a real privilege. The book to read about what Esther spoke about in the conference is Loving to Know. So if you want to make a note of that, that's very easy. Loving to Know. And that's her, her latest well she's got a book since then but that's her most recent popular book and it's dealing with what she calls covenant epistemology and i'm going to be looking at covenant epistemology in the context of discipleship so away we go uh the history of western christianity just during my lifetime so we're going from the mid 50s on through to recent Probably summarising three words. We had the 50s, 60s, 70s, where the word was evangelism with Billy Graham. Um, you know, everyone was trained to do it. It was like the St. John Ambulance first aid course, for instance. Everyone was sent on evangelism courses. And that got up a lot of momentum. But in the 80s and 90s, that probably died as the new movement came in, church growth. That's the next word. And that began as a, a sort of a foreign missions thing. And that was Ralph Winter pointing out that we need to do with different cultures differently. And that caught on into the church. It was intended as a foreign mission uh, proposal, but it actually leaked into the churches and became very popular. And that's continued on to 80s, 90s, into the 2000s. And now we've entered a new period where the word is discipleship, because everywhere you go, you will see it. And it's in a sense... We, each of those movements tending to be further and further back away from society. I'm not going to talk about that, but that's something that we can observe. The problem with all of these words, and particularly discipleship, is it's sort of like a, a Slavozizek uh, master signifier, the word which everyone uses and everyone calls. To, it's a call to action. Everyone jumps in and away we go because everyone knows what discipleship is, except no one's actually written down what it is and no one really knows what it is. So if you go to the web and you look up disciple or please give me a definition of discipleship, we will get things like the kind of person Jesus would be, one who embraces the teaching of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a fan of Jesus, someone who knows and loves being with Jesus. And the list can extend uh, infinitely. When you go to scripture, so it gets more complicated. Uh, look at, Matthew 16, you know, Jesus describing how he's going to uh, basically pick up his cross and he's going to be crucified in Jerusalem. And then he turns to his disciples and says, hey, if you want to be a disciple, you have to do the same too. Pick up your cross and follow me. Now, in Western traditions, we tend to sort of water all that down. And uh, we sort of say, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. But when I read it, I think he did. <laughs> Very difficult. Or you can go to, uh, say, Luke uh, 14, is it? Yeah, I think Luke 14, where he says you have to deny your mother and father. 
these are difficult passages and you know, attempts to soften them don't really sort of ring true. So let's climb the mountain where Esther has taken us in the conference and climb up there and stand and look at the landscape before us. Uh, sorry, I'll apologize now. You, the metaphors and the stand, stories I tell are all uh, bushwalking related because I'm a bushwalking fan. So sorry, you're going to get it tonight. <laughs> That's just me. Okay, so Esther's outlook is called Covenant Epistemology, and she has three contours to that model. Now, that didn't come out in the conference. She only started going down the first two and and really not in detail. It was just not any time. I'll try and summarise, though. So first contour is the failure of the default ways of Western thinking. So we're talking about the dichotomies of Western thought, so uh, good versus evil. Okay, and if you want to read more about that, there's an excellent talk or two talks in our Gospel Conversations catalogue from Mark Strom on that very subject, good and evil. Really worthwhile listening to that if you haven't heard it. Or in terms of modern preaching, we have the dichotomy of theory and practice. So preaching is about informing people. Okay, if you're informed, then you can be a disciple. This just says, no, it doesn't work that way. So we think that study is the access to knowing. And so you end up with lots of people who give lots of right answers to specific question, specific, specific questions, but is that knowing? Or uh, my Pentecostal friends who say that having a specific experience gives us access to knowing. I'm not trying to put either of those down, but they miss the point. So uh, Zechariah's prayer in Luke 1, he's now able to speak and he gives praise to God. And he says, God is giving us knowledge of salvation to his people. Praise the Lord. I am sure that Zechariah did mean that his son, John the Baptist, was coming to teach penal substitution theory. It's a lot deeper than that. So. Let me tell you a story. You're going to get a few stories tonight of my friends. So walking friends, uh, we're going to walk in West Australia with a few other people. And we've gone early to get ready. And so we're going to put a few kilometres on beforehand just to get into the rhythm. Now, I have to tell you, my friend is what you would call a big sinner. He's an ex-pastor and he got caught out in adultery. And he was removed, et cetera, et cetera, the whole thing, you know. And we're sitting at breakfast and we're just planning out the day ahead. And I said, tell, tell us a bit more, you know, about, you know, you know, ha- you know, you had to forgive yourself and, and so on. And what about your wife, you know? <laughs> he turned to me and he said, had that look, you know, one of those looks that sort of just peers straight through your eyes and into your, straight into the middle of your head. You know, it's a really piercing look. And he said, Mark, you will not know what forgiveness is about. You will not know grace until you have stood in my shoes. A hundred sermons on the prodigal son will never teach you what forgiveness is truly about. It's one of those things we see in the mirror darkly, as the scripture says. And and as Esther says, the West 
abstracts knowledge. But knowledge is actually very personal. So that's Esther's point. And so I would conclude that a disciple is someone who knows Jesus in a personal sense, because knowing is personal. No cardboard cutouts here, and you can overlay them on people. It is personal. The second contour that Esther describes is this fancy word she used, subsidiary focal integration. So knowing is about subsidiary focal integration. That's how we come to know. Basically, knowing has to be transformative. Okay, I need to give an analogy here. This is an unusual one, and I hope you follow through. It's, ah, it's about walking poles. <laughs> do, people know what, do people know what walking poles look like? People seen people using walking poles? Yep, yep. Okay. Well, I was just uh, reading a big magazine, and there, there was an article on walking poles. And I know that article is wrong. In fact, I can tell you that 99, well, not 99%, 90% of people who are using walking poles are wrong. They do not know walking poles. So here's what happens. Uh, people, especially older people, uh, are given a, a pair of walking poles and they grab them by the handles and say, oh, this is great. Because as you're doing bushwalking, you're going to walk across very uneven territory, sometimes very rough territory. And having two sticks in your hand is just great. So you can just pump them away and you can move quite a lot quicker through difficult terrain. And for older people, it's just a lifeline because your balance is going. And so you, you got, you know, you got protection. That is absolutely great. But that's not what poles were designed for. The whole idea of the walking pole is simple. It's to distribute uh, energy and effort from your upper body to your lower body so that you can protect protect your ankles and your knees, the joints which are taking a lot of weight and they tend to run out. If you're on your feet for six, eight hours on a long walk and uh, yeah, you need to protect those things. So the way of doing that is to use your upper body. It's not so easy because it takes, well, the first thing you do, you grab, you don't grab your poles. You slip your hands in and you rest your poles. So you rest the straps in and around your palms of your hand, you never hold the poles. You may not have noticed that. Everyone else holds them like, do you like, and of course you're gonna get arthritis as you get older. No, you slip your hands in, you rest it there, and you go on from there. Uh, there's a whole lot of things to do with rhythm and the angle of the poles, uh, pushing yourself back to get body height. All of these things are absolutely great for walking rhythm and walking routine, but <laughs> it's not easy to learn. And so you have all these people who just give up. But if you persist, if you persist and you focus in on all of these instructions all at once, it's, it's like riding a bike. And I think that's the Esther example. She often uses the example of riding a bike. It, it's just frightening and you just don't know what to do. But if you persist, you will eventually just, oh, it's, it's working. And next thing you know, it's part of you. It's part of your subsidiary self, that part of yourself which you don't recognize. It's just what you might call the subconscious. It's just in there. So when you go walking, you just pick up your sticks and you suddenly immediately you've got a walking rhythm which gets you elevated, nice and back straight, ankles and uh, 
your knees protected. That's how it works. So just giving the parallels, you can look at a disciple as someone who just uh, focuses in on Jesus and his teaching and uh, just like the people who just focus in on using the poles to do a particular job, you know, just learn, learn what Jesus wants and do it. Some people see discipleship that way, but discipleship's actually about incorporating, integrating Jesus into your whole life. And that's not done by having lists of things to remember all the time. It's about training and pulling it in to your effectively your subsidiary self or your subconscious. So you do the right thing without even thinking about it. That's what a disciple's all about. So uh, let's let's talk about church teaching on sexuality. So the, the way the church does it is this. Okay, here it is. You do all these things and you don't do all these things. Okay, you got it? No, it doesn't work that way because sexuality means knowing about people and their bodies. It's about intimacy and what that means and how that works. It's about the covenantal union of people in, in marriage and, and so on. It's, it's very hard to teach from the pulpit. You just can't stand up and teach that sort of stuff from the pulpit. Yes, you can teach the do's and the don'ts. This is a problem. Uh, and of course, marriage is a mystery. You are yourself in one sense, and you're also your spouses in another sense. A great mystery. Won't go down there. So if we want to talk about disciplines of the broader disciplines of Christian life, uh, like poles, you practice disciplines until it becomes part of yourself. It's as simple as that. So a disciple is someone who has deeply integrated Christian disciplines. And we're talking about prayer and, and communion with the singing and all of those things. He practiced Christian disciplines. So in the long run, it's incorporated into you. And that's part of the transformation of discovering Jesus. The third contour is interpersonhood. Uh, Esther says the I-we connection about people in communion. So we actually discover things when, excuse me, we discover things through our being in communion with others. So what is real is ultimately an artifact of being a person in relationship. Uh, Esther would say that knowledge as personal does not mean we enter some sort of wild postmodern world of private reality. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Our interpersonhood means that we engage others. And through that engagement, we start to connect to the real. Without that connection with others, and you could add our connection with other things, such as the environment. We might talk about that. That's another subject. We don't really connect with the real. We just become, as Simon Garfunkel sings, I'm a rock, I'm an island. You need people. Uh, coming back to my friend, uh, the, the man who uh, sacked as pastor, what happened to him was very interesting. Uh, you know, he was immediately dismissed, of course, uh, and the, he was sent off 
to all these professionals, psychiatrists and counsellors and everything else, and sent away. He's not to come back to the church until the psychs and the counsellors and all those things give him all the ticks, which is, I found, unusual. Here's the problem. The church body, the people sitting in the pews didn't have to confront the issues of forgiving him. It was now outsourced to the psychologists and counsellors, and I thought that was just bizarre. It sounded good at the time. But it was bizarre. Don't worry, the church is very good because people chased after him as he left, and he had plenty of people supporting him and plenty of people who wanted to go and forgive him. But yeah. So a disciple is a person who knows themselves through the connections that they maintain with others and the things around them. So it's this understanding of knowing in summary is three contours. Knowing is personal, not abstract. Knowing is transformative through discovery, which he calls subsidiary focal integration. And knowing is about interpersonal connections. So with those three things, I'll give you a rough definition of a disciple as a person who through the practice of Christian disciplines discovers their self-identity that's important, self-identity, as being wrapped up in the life of Jesus, what he's done, what's he doing, and what he's going to do. And, of course, discipleship is just the process of working that through as a community. Okay. Where does this fit into church life? Because uh, Esther has a section in her book. She didn't cover any of this in the conference, so I'm just going to jump ahead. So she covers this in her book and she has a section towards the end where she talks about engaging the real. So these are the sort of things that people should be doing. And I think churches should be doing and building in order to, to build disciples, as I've described. Number one, build desire. So uh, um, if you read James Smith or James K.A. Smith or Jamie Smith, as he's called sometimes, uh, his book, Desiring the Kingdom, is uh, a pivotal work, very popular. A lot of people have read it. And he just basically says, we are what we desire. So Beatles aren't right. I mean, love is all you need is not right. <laughs> desire and a good desire. Sermons used to nurture desire. It's interesting if you go back in history. Nurtures, uh, sermons used to really nurture desire. But do you know what? They don't anymore. And we don't know why. And sermons become very cerebral, very much in the head. So I don't know what's happened. So how does the church community promote desire? That's a, that's a difficult question. And uh, maybe in our discussion afterwards, we can uh, sort of get some ideas. Uh, so you take the analogy of a, a wife who wants to kindle the desire of her husband for her. Okay, we can reverse. You know, okay, okay, it could also be a husband for the wife. But I'm just using this example of a wife who wants to kindle the desire of her husband. Does she go and paint herself up and dress up? Well, if you've been married long enough, no, this doesn't work. Unfortunately, churches think that does, and they do these sorts of things. No, it's in the intimacy. If a woman wants to attract a male, and likewise, male for a woman, it's in the intimacy. The date night, the little things you do, it could be a shoulder rub, I you know. Um, you can make all that up. I see Ron laughing, he has something in mind. But 
you go out of your way to please each other. Little games you play. It's in the intimacy. And desire comes from a simple word, closeness. So how do churches promote closeness with Christ? That's an interesting question. I don't think I've got a particular answer. Though I must say, as I move about in the church, as I watch, so I'm, I'm in uh, Sydney Evangelical Churches and I move about a bit, you know, you watch the practice of the Lord's Supper. Here's a place where traditionally, this is where people come close to Jesus. When I look, it's a dog's dinner. Sorry for that expression, but I'll use it. It's a dog's dinner. It's stuck out behind the sermon. It's rushed. It's hurried. And people really don't know what to say, except, well, Jesus gave us his example. We better do it. Otherwise, we won't be a good church. We've, we've lost total understanding of what it's all about. Not everyone. The older people do. You watch the older people in congregations. I suppose I'm cast as that now. And we can continue on. Communion leads to scripture reading, which leads to prayer. All of these things are in a real mess at the moment. We really need something to change. And and I use the word closeness or intimacy. That's what we need to build. Uh, second thing Esther suggests, and she actually has a long list, but I'm just taking three. Build composure. Uh, Resting in who you are, your self-identity in Christ. So I've worked in corporates all my life, big corporate businesses. And um, this idea of composure and confidence is, is gold. That's what businesses want. Uncertainty, instability is just is fatal. You want confidence. Composure. So... Um, I this this afternoon I was part of an IS cast. Um, I'll, I'll send out the link if people are interested. Uh, it won't be up on YouTube yet, but it was a it will be in about a week's time. So uh, IS cast is Christians in Science. It's out of Melbourne. We'll forgive them for that that they didn't put it in Sydney. Uh, but we have Dora Kostasha, the a new guy on on board, and Lisa Sideris, I think it was from the US. Uh, talking about religiously human in a technocratic scientific world. It was absolutely brilliant. And the thing that they pointed out uh, right at the very beginning, both of them actually, was the crisis of self. We don't know who we are. Everyone's looking out. Science tells us that all of these things are making us, making these things work. But we have ended up looking back into ourselves and this is crisis that we don't know who we are as i said the scientist understands all of the universe except himself or themselves church used to have a lot of wisdom liturgy used to be a place where they would sort of capture all of that uh wisdom of the past and and, and of course create um practices that sort of uh, gave meaning and we've lost all of those as well and uh, it's really sad uh, James Smith James Smith is really big on liturgy and how that connects the present with the past and the future so you know, liturgies you know Bible reading is can be a liturgy and it's done so poorly in churches 
I mean, you know, I cringe sometimes when let's have the Bible reading and it's read so poorly. Not always, but quite often. And, and of course, you can say the same about prayer and the, and we've already mentioned communion. These are disciplines that we are losing. And if we want to build composure, we need to work out who we are and be confident in who we are. Thirdly, we need to build comportment. Okay, that's a fancy word. It means how you carry yourself in the world and how you carry yourself in your relationships. And um, uh, Esther uses the word truth as troth. Uh, troth is the part of the word that's betrothed. Okay, it's she's talking about uh, deep and binding relationships. So uh, just a story. I uh, drive country families in who arrive in Sydney by plane and I take take them out to the children's hospitals. So that's a part of my charity efforts in my retirement. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful work that I do. Uh, it's, it's just brilliant. Um, I just love it, but it has its downsides as well because uh, not all children survive, but I remember driving this unmarried couple. So right out back, he's a minor right out the back of New South Wales. They flew in, and I took them in. They, they didn't know what was wrong with their little baby, three months old. And uh, I also took them back the other way. So I took them from the hospital after all the tests had been done. And I found uh, you don't talk to them. You, they just tell their stories as you drive. You're never not allowed to ask them anyhow. But they always tell their stories. And they were very distressed because they were told that their child was dying. Uh, but he would have 10 to 15 years. So it's not, not an instant. And uh, and I thought that would be the last I would see of them. But uh, I did meet them again uh, about six months down the track. Uh, they appeared on my roster and I was able to drive them again. But things were so different. She showed me, look. And she had a ring on her finger and she's saying, well, tell us the story. And they said, well, look, we went back and thought about it. And he said, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, our son's going to die well before we're dead. What are we going to do? Well. They had a plan. We're going to get married. We're going to raise this child. We're going to have more children so he can have brothers and sisters. And we're going to create a family. And whilst that doesn't sound strange to us, the position they were in, uh, <laughs> it was. It was a total transformation. It wasn't faith-based at all. They changed their whole stance from where they were, you know, they were unmarried. They just had this child and that was a good idea at the time to let's build a covenant family. That's what I call it. They might just give it a different term, but I call it a covenant family. And we're going to see this through right through to the end. And that, and that, that makes my driving job you know, pay for itself. Uh, for me as a, someone who's lived in the corporate world it's it's about um if you want to talk about comportment you talk about empowerment and that's where i have a problem with churches because churches have a power problem it's it's not deliberate it's just people are afraid to give lots of people power uh people just float about uh they you know people don't people aren't given accountability they're not given responsibility because the leadership of churches tends to hold that in because they know if they give it to people, uh, then things can go wrong. 
Yes, it can, but it also can be a real blessing because it empowers people. And that empowerment means they can stand in a deeper relationship to the church. They're now in on the church. They're not sitting in the pews. They're now in on the church. And they're part of that comportment of the church. Covenanted in, locked in, working. So, three, three items that church need to think about. Building desire, building contentment and confidence, and building this comportment in covenant. So, how do we know we've got there? Is an interesting question. And Esther answers that in her book as well. And she calls it Trinitarian perichoresis. Got the pronunciation correct, which is really the Trinity. But what she's referring to, that's the Holy Trinity, but what she's actually referring to is the dance between the knower, the known, and the knowing. So if anyone knows the movie The Truman Show, the knowers are all the people who are watching the reality show. The known is Truman, is the person known, and the knowing are all the people like Christoph who have created the world in which he, uh, the reality show is actually occurring in. So um, Catholics are very good on this. Um, they talk about the unity between God, his people, and his creation. So uh, Pope Benedict and von Balthasar, very, very good on this. And so you know, we're less so in, in Protestant circles. So what we're talking about, um, what are we talking about? Perichoresis is about walking around. It's, it's like dancing. So we could say, we know when we've got there. We just know when we got there, when the dance brings a unity and a togetherness that we can sort of feel. Uh, Paul's um, biggest uh, innovation, I'm into innovation. You can see innovation from a mile away. Paul's biggest innovation, it sticks out, is the unity of the body, this message about the body. And that's what he's trying to say, bring uh, people together in unity and togetherness, even though there's all sorts of forces trying to pull it apart, bring it in and create a body. Of course, the ultimate perichoresis is the intimacy between the God, the disciple, and the community of disciples. And that's pretty much a mystery. But you know about it. I mean, uh, my recent walk in WA, um, there was a, you know, there were 15 of us, and I, I only knew a couple of people. So all the other people were just would know them from a bar or so. And uh, we were bussed out to Cape Naturalist. And they said, well, here's the start of the track. And Cape Lewin, which is the end of the walk, is 135 kilometres in that direction. Here's a map. And there are lots of signs along the way. And we'll have people watching over you. Don't worry. Go. And so we had all these people. <laughs> 15 of us, and they picked us up every 20 kilometres or so. Uh, so we took us seven days. So every 20 kilometres or so, they pick us up and take us away and feed us and put us to sleep. Now, the thing that became so obvious in the walk was the fact that there were 15 people of extreme diversity. So you had your little librarian, squeak, squeak, <laughs> through to the woman. It just wouldn't shut up. Where's the off button? And all sorts of other diversities in between. And you know, by the end of the eight days, seven days of walking, that group had formed itself, formed itself into a unity. 
not a covenant union or anything like that, but it might as well have been because it worked together uh, as a walking pack, as it were. We knew each other. Uh, if you want to, if you want to into evangelism, go on one of these walks because as you walk, people change. It's to do with the physical nature of it and the fact that there's no one around. And you can talk about anything. You can talk about the faith. And people will ask you about your faith without any qualms. No, no holds barred. You can't do that in society normally. And that's what happened on the walk. You know, there's plenty of witnessing going on amongst my uh, Christian friends with all of the other rabble. Yeah, it's fantastic. So um, in terms of churches, um, what made my walk work? This group come together was they had a focus. And it was a very clear focus. Get to the end of the walk. And church needs to have focus. It's it, it that could take many shapes. I mean, it could be the annual fair or whatever. There's a whole lot of things. My church has oh, this massive child's children's program, which has stopped in COVID, unfortunately, but it will get going again. It's massive. And it becomes a focus for church. And there's job for everyone. And um, it pulls everything together. And there's a focus. We're losing it. And church has dissipated uh, focus. And it's partly to do with COVID. We need to pull it back together again. And the pew, people in the pew are just left wondering about where do we go? People are seeking a partner to dance with. That's what they're doing. And, that's, and once you get people partnered and dancing, then you get this perichoresis, this beautiful dance. And that's where we want to be. It's a long journey. Let me just summarize uh, before I finish. Firstly, thank you for, to Esther Meek, a wonderful conference. I've got a lot out of it. And I've just pulled some things that hopefully you'll find useful and hopefully we'll discuss more. So just a reminder that knowing is personal. Knowing is molded by engaging with others and knowing is about transformation of oneself so that you know yourself okay let's stop there and uh, you can open up your uh, your audio and we can uh, get going for comments